Support for this program comes from listeners like you. To find out more, visit us online at chipbrogdon.com. Mark chapter 14, part 2 of the Passover plot. And uh, if you would please turn over to Mark 14, if you have not done so already, we are going to continue with the second half of Mark chapter 14 as we take a look at the final hours leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus and look at them not merely from a historical perspective which is certainly valuable, but also look at them from a prophetic and a spiritual perspective to see how these things, uh, these things apply to us as we bear the testimony of Jesus in the earth. So as we consider the second half of Mark 14, we'll look at three subdivisions as we consider these things together. Number one, Jesus arrested in the garden. Number two, Jesus before the Sanhedrin. And number three, Peter denies the Lord. Actually, he denies the Lord three times. So we'll talk about that. Let's begin reading. In Mark chapter 14, verse 43 And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately He went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. And you know, of, of of this whole passage and maybe even this entire chapter, the phrase that jumps out to me and, and really sticks out in my mind as the most impactful part of this whole chapter is to read verse 50. Then they all forsook him and fled. Well, that would be a great thing for us to pause and consider how they all forsook him and fled. So let's make a few points here. The arrest of Jesus, keeping keep in mind all the events that have been leading up to this point, the arrest of Jesus there in the Garden of Gethsemane, is the culmination of three years of hostility against him by the religious leaders who sought to destroy him. From the very beginning, they wanted to destroy the Lord Jesus. And so this this 
arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is the, the end result of three years of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the elders trying to plot and figure out how they could trap him, how they could destroy him. So this has been going on for three years. And I think that is really illustrative to us of how (laughs) Jesus was the original iconoclast against the religious system of his day. Now, for his day, that religious system was Judaism. In our day, the I would say the predominant religious system is Christianity, or as I like to say, churchianity. And by drawing that comparison between Judaism of Jesus' day and Christianity or churchianity of our day, I'm, I'm wanting you to see the parallel and the similarities. And what ties these religious systems together is the, the spirit that operates in them and through them, the spirit behind them, and it is the spirit of religion. And I would suggest to you that that spirit of religion, regardless of how it manifests, whether it's coming through Christianity or Judaism or Islam or Buddhism or some other religion, even if it doesn't call itself a religion, such as New Age, but all of these things are, when you expose the root of them, they are contrary and anti antithetical against the Lord and antichrist against Christ and against the preeminence of Jesus. And that comes as a surprise to many people who they consider church and God to be the same thing. They consider the church, the visible church, the organized church. They consider that to be the representation of God on the earth Uh, Scripture instead indicates that in the last days there would be a falling away from the truth and that there would be those who would come saying that they are the Christ and would deceive many people. And Jesus says to be, be warned, be aware, be on your guard against these things. And in the book of Revelation, which we have studied extensively, we see that in the last days or in the end times, the end of one age before the the coming of the of the next age would be characterized by a worldwide harlot religious system now we can speculate about what that entails my personal thought and i've shared this before is that it is probably the secularization of religion or it is the church and state coming together or uh, however you want to to describe it, but Scripture describes it as a political as well as as a religious system that comes against and fights against those who bear the testimony of Jesus. So it is the, the testimony of Jesus, meaning the truth concerning Jesus, and Jesus, for the last three years, has been steadily proclaiming the truth concerning his father, and when questioned, also steadily proclaiming the truth concerning himself, and so he is bearing his own testimony, 
whereas uh, you and I bear his testimony in the earth by witnessing and testifying as to the truth concerning Jesus, that he is the only way, the only truth, the only life, and that no one is saved apart from him. Now, in in different ways, in different um, different teachings, in different parables, Jesus has communicated this uh, to the religious leaders of his day, and this has created um, hostility. It has created animosity against him. And the interesting thing is that this ministry of Jesus, his earthly ministry, his public ministry of of teaching and even of healing and doing miracles, that that religious system that he was he was in the midst of could only tolerate him for three and a half years before it had to destroy him. And so I want you to think about that and think about how that spirit of Antichrist is stirred up within these religious systems. And that's important because the same thing is happening today. So that they will do anything to avoid the truth and anything that they can do to silence the prophets of God, to uh, ignore all of the warning signs in order to preserve their own religious system. And in fact, one expert has said that when we consider the, the arrest and the trial of Jesus, that more than a dozen, at least a dozen, but more than a dozen Jewish laws were broken in the illegal arrest and trial of Jesus. So the point of that is, and, and I, I understand that uh, everything happens according to the time and season of the Father, and I also understand that no one can take my life, Jesus says, but I lay it down freely. And so all of these things are happening uh, to fulfill God's purpose for Christ to be the, the sacrifice, uh, the redeemer of the world, the savior of the world, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So all of that is true, but it still illustrates the, how the spirit of religion operates in order to destroy the son of God, destroy the testimony of Jesus. And that explains why that spirit of Antichrist is still working today to silence those who have the revelation of Christ and those who would bear the testimony of Jesus in the earth. And that's illustrated again in the book of Revelation with the spiritual warfare. It says that the dragon was angry and he went forth to make war against the saints and against those who bear the testimony of Jesus. Well, you are seeing this in Mark 14 you are seeing it happen in in real time, in real life. You are seeing the dragon working through this religious system to destroy Jesus. And I'm saying that's the same thing that's happening today. The dragon using religion or the devil using religion, using religious people, religious systems, to lead even the elect astray, to lead us all astray from the simplicity of Christ 
and to distract us from a relationship and get us bogged down into a religion. And even a religion about Jesus, it doesn't make any difference uh, if it's about Jesus or about something else, so long as it keeps people bound and keeps them tied down and burdened by religion. Religion is man-made. It's a creation of man. It's inspired by the devil to get man to believe that he is in control and that he can get God to do what he wants to do. It's a way of creating a tower of Babel, a tower of confusion to reach the heavens and to exalt man over God. It doesn't always seem that way. It seems like it's lifting up God. It seems like it's honoring God. It seems like that we're trying to lift up the Lord when actually often what we're doing is lifting up our own selves. And that is the spirit of religion. That's how these religious leaders could come and exalt themselves over the son of God and sentence him to, to die. So this simply illustrates this conflict. So uh, we, sh we should not, you know, the idea that there should be no conflict or we should just love people and that we should uh, simply point people to Jesus. And I've had people say that to me. Well, just tell us about Jesus. We don't want to hear about everything that's wrong with the church. But you see, um, Jesus did not just go, go around and teach and minister about uh, the love of God and about how wonderful the kingdom of God is, he also had to warn and confront these religious spirits when when they came out from wherever it is they came out. They would come and they would attack him. And so for the last three years, remember, Jesus has publicly denounced and actually humiliated the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he has pronounced judgment on Jerusalem, which is supposed to be God's holy city. And he has prophesied the destruction of the temple. In other words, he is saying your whole religious system is under the judgment of God and it's going to be destroyed. God is, is going to take the kingdom away from you and give it to another nation who will bring forth the fruits thereof. Well, when, whenever anyone stands up and speaks out against this religious system, then certainly you can expect that religious system is going to mark you as an enemy and is going to viciously come against you and try to destroy you. Um, so it was true in Jesus' time. It is certainly true in our time. And why is all of that important? Well, it's because we we can observe not only the price we will pay for speaking the truth, but we can also observe and not be surprised and not be frightened, but not be surprised at the tenacity and the ferocity of the religious spirit to destroy anyone who opposes it. And it could be the pastor that doesn't think you are properly submitted to his leadership or the apostle or the deacons. It could be the Pope. It could be any prophet or any man of God. So called 
And if you don't go along with with what is being taught, what is being said, or, or the direction in which you are being led, and you speak out against that, then you can observe the, the violence of the religious system as it seeks to protect itself and to destroy anyone who opposes it. Now, having said that, let me say this. I don't think it's my place or your place to stay in a, in a situation that we are against. I don't think it's our place to continue attending a church or attending something or supporting something that we don't agree with. And that's what I, when I tell people, if you don't like the things that I teach, if you don't like the things that I put out, if you don't like the books that I write, if you don't like the teachings that I record, then don't listen, don't read, don't support it, go somewhere else. And the reason I say that is because I don't believe that speaking the truth means that you go around looking for people to argue with or that you continue <laughs> to go to church when you are inwardly opposed to the church or you're against the pastor, you're against the leadership for whatever reason. And maybe the reasons are legitimate. Maybe you maybe they are legitimately off course. Or maybe you have a genuine revelation of Christ and, and the revelation of the body of Christ, the ecclesia, the spiritual house of living stones. And you realize it's a dead thing. You realize that the harlot church system is under God's judgment. You hear the voice of God that says, come out of her, my people, and be separate. You see all that. You say amen to it, and yet you're still going every week. I, I don't I don't understand that. I cannot understand that. I mean, I do on one level. It's because you're trying to have the best of both worlds, and you can't have the best of both worlds. Jesus did not enjoy the best of both worlds. No follower of Jesus will be able to enjoy the best of both worlds. In other words, what I'm saying is you can't say that you see the truth and you believe in the truth, but you don't speak the truth and you don't order your life and change your behavior according to the truth that you say that you see and that you say that you believe. So there's going to be a price that we have to pay. And if you're not willing to pay the price to speak the truth, then um, you, I, I suppose the reason is the truth really has not possessed you fully. You have really not been fully convinced. Maybe it's just an intellectual agreement. Maybe it's just a mental agreement that, that you hear something. Yep. I, I agree with that. I believe that. I think a lot of people, when they, they hear the things I say, I, I think a lot of people inwardly agree with them. I know many don't, but I think many do, but they don't, they haven't seen it. They haven't really seen it because if they had seen it, there's no way they could go back and submit themselves to it. They, they could not attend it. They could not support it. Uh, they could not say, uh, well, next month I'm going to... I'm going to do something about it 
or let me let me finish uh, the Sunday school class that I started teaching, and and then I'll do something about it. Now, you, you just you, you won't, you just won't. Because there is a price that we all have to pay, and I'm paying that price every day. There's a price that we have to pay for speaking the truth. And for some people, that price is going to be that you don't have the fellowship. You don't have the friendship. You don't have the meetings or the or the corporate worship. Why do people so much miss corporate worship? I mean, can't you sit at the fit at the foot of uh, can't you sit at the feet of Jesus and worship him in spirit and truth? Why do you have to have an atmosphere to to accomplish that? I think it ref, it is a reflection of our religious addiction. All the things that we think that we have to have, all the things that we say that we miss. And my counsel to you is, if you miss it that much, then just go back because you're not ready. You really haven't seen the truth. So I'm not going to argue with you or tell you where you should go or what you should do or should not do. I'd say if you're missing it that bad, go on back. Go back to where you came from. But. Many people who have done that have found themselves to be even more miserable. And so that's why I'm saying you've got to decide for yourself. And you've got to realize that you cannot enjoy and have the best of both worlds. You can have anything you want, but you can't have everything you want. And there's a price that you have to pay for speaking the truth and also for living the truth. And I'm, I'm saying that if you are a part of that system and you speak the truth long enough and you stand for the truth long enough, you're going to experience the tenacity and the ferocity of that religious system. You're going to experience that religious spirit who comes against you, who doesn't like you, and you may not even understand it. But I'm saying don't be surprised by that and don't moan and groan about it and don't complain about it. I'm saying take it as a sign that it's time for you to move on, to shake the dust off of your feet. I mean, ask yourself, what are you doing there anyway? I mean, God can use all of that to get through to you that he wants his people to come out, come out, come out and be separate, says the Lord. So then we come to uh, the next section of Mark 14, beginning in verse 53, where Jesus is before the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin are the religious leadership. It's actually, I think it's, it, I think it's 49 members, or it could be 50 members of the full Sanhedrin. And then there's a smaller Sanhedrin that I think is 12 or 13 members. I don't know for sure. Maybe the full Sanhedrin, it may be 51. I'm not sure. Uh, but no doubt, this was before the full Sanhedrin. And so it would be the high priest and the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and many of the Pharisees. But these are the highest people in the in that religious system of that day. 
And so now Jesus is being led uh, to them. Well, I think we skipped over a verse, so let's go back to 51. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young man laid hold of him, the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. So when it says in verse 50 that they all forsook him and fled, I mean, this was, they literally fled. To fled means to run from as if in terror, to run from in terror, and that's exactly what uh, his disciples did at that point. Uh, So now we come to verse 53, and they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy, and the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Well, uh, here is an example of a kangaroo court, and um, this is where it's a trial that is there only for show. Um, It's not in the interest of discovering the truth or learning the truth or having a fair and impartial judgment. Instead, the decision was already made well in advance that Jesus was guilty and deserving of death, uh, but they simply went through the the motions of having a trial. So, by now the disciples have forsaken him and they have fled, one of them even running out of his clothes or (laughs) running away naked in his haste to get away. Um. And But notice Peter in verse 54, it says that Peter followed him from a distance. Peter followed him at a distance. And, you know, when I consider that, it, it did make me wonder. And it made me ask myself a question. And it's a question I want to ask you. How many today are following Jesus at a distance? How many today are following Jesus at a distance, just like Peter did? But they're unwilling to go where he wants to lead them. How many are following Jesus at a distance, but when Jesus begins to lead them, when Jesus begins to go to a place that is not where we want to go, 
We begin to love ourselves more than we love the Lord, and so we become unwilling to be led. And all of this is because I believe we are not following Jesus closely enough. We're following Jesus at a distance. Or we think that following some man of God or some woman of God or following some ministry or following some church organization is the same thing as following Jesus. And I would say at best that is following him at a distance if it is following Jesus at all. Of course, it's very possible that you could be following the pastor, following the pope, following your denomination, following the church, following your own theological belief system, your own doctrinal statement. And at best, that is following him at a distance. I think most of the time it's not following Jesus at all. But even if we give someone the benefit of the doubt, it's always have people that they come up and say, oh, you, you got to be careful. You, you can't judge and you can't uh, criticize and you can't condemn because you don't know where people are and so forth and so on. So they always people like that always want to blunt and dull the sword of truth with their constant hand-wringing over don't judge and don't condemn and you can't paint everybody with a broad brush. Well, that's not what I'm doing at all. I'm simply observing and asking the question, how many today believe they are following Jesus, but they're at best following Jesus at a distance, and most of them are not following him at all? They're like many of these disciples. They all forsook him and fled. And maybe they all forsook Jesus and fled. And they found refuge in their church or in their ministry or in their title or position. And maybe they think they're following Jesus, but I would say at best, perhaps they are following him at a distance like Peter, if they are following him at all. Because that is the plan of the spirit of religion is to intimidate you and to make you afraid and actually to judge and to criticize and to condemn and to distract you and seduce you away from the simplicity of Christ and into the complexity of religion so that you have a self-centered faith or a church-centered faith instead of a Christ-centered faith. So I think that's important to observe there with Peter. And again, with this, this whole testimony here before the Sanhedrin, I mean, these are the people that are supposed to be uh, the most knowledgeable about Scripture, the most... Uh, the most wise in terms of understanding God and understanding his, his will and his ways. And yet they didn't recognize the Lord Jesus, the son of God standing before them. So we observe that bearing the testimony of Jesus in the midst of an antichrist religious system is going to stir up unreasonable and unrealistic fear and hatred. So the, the idea that you can really bear witness to the truth concerning Jesus, but you can still be part of that religious system and survive it. Uh, not only does it not make common sense, it doesn't make spiritual or scriptural sense. And we see that even Jesus himself could not stand in the midst of that antichrist religious system. 
His very presence there and only just a few words of truth from him stirred up accusations of blasphemy, and they all condemned him to be deserving of death. So that's why I say again, we cannot have the best of both worlds. We cannot enjoy this wonderful revelation of Christ as all and think that somehow we can survive and thrive in a religious system where church is all instead of Christ. So with a Christ-centered faith, Christ is at the center. Christ has preeminence. But it's very simple to discern the difference between a Christ-centered faith, a self-centered faith, and a church-centered faith. But I'm saying we can't have both, and we can't have and enjoy and benefit from and be blessed by this wonderful revelation of Christ and enjoy all the benefits of every spiritual blessing in Christ, and enjoy and experience what it means to have the freedom and joy of a Christ-centered faith, and have all of that, and think that we can also, at the same time, maintain our relationship in and with a harlot church system that is actually anti-Christ. Antichrist doesn't just mean against Christ, it means coming forth as Christ and yet is opposed to Christ. That's what Antichrist means. Now, what else in all the world comes forth as Christ yet opposes Christ? It would have to be churchianity, or as I say, Christianity, which is uh, much worse than the Jewish system ever was, has done much more damage than the Jewish system ever did because that Jewish religious system was basically limited to the borders of Israel. But churchianity and Christianity today, and for the last 2,000 years, has done damage all over the world. Now, I'm not saying that it hasn't also done good. I mean, hospitals have been built, missions have been sent, and... um The gospel has been preached. Scripture has been translated. A lot of good things have happened as a result. But when you read the book of Revelation, you find that that Jesus, while giving them praise for all the good things they had done in his name, he said, nevertheless, and this was to the ecclesia in Ephesus, I have a few things against you because you have lost your first love. So whatever good we could say about the institutional church, for all the good that it has done, it has also done much damage. And it has also led as probably as many people away from the Lord as it has brought people to the Lord, or at least to what they think the Lord is. And I'm saying that all of that will be examined All of that will be judged. God will reveal and expose the hypocrisy of that religious system just as surely as he judged and revealed and exposed the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious system in Jesus' day. And just as surely as that judgment came in A.D. 70 and that whole system was destroyed, just just as Jesus said it would be, the same thing is going to happen to the church system that you and I know of today. It's inevitable. 
So the question is, uh, where will, where will you be when that happens? That's why God is calling his people. When he reveals that judgment of the harlot in the book of Revelation, he says, come out of her, my people. So we can't have the best of both worlds. We cannot enjoy the revelation of Christ and enjoy the, the freedom and the liberty and the, the joy of a Christ-centered faith and still hang on and think that we can survive and thrive in a religious system where church has the preeminence instead of Jesus. I, I don't know how to make it any plainer than that. Now, it's easy. The other observation I would have uh, from this section is it's it's really easy for us to sit back and and maybe you're doing this yourself to sit back and judge something as blasphemy. I haven't been accused of blasphemy lately, but I get accused of heresy all the time. And, and the nicer um, epithet is error. I believe, brother, that you are in error. In other words, uh, the stronger version of that is uh, heresy, or you are a heretic, or a false teacher. But I would just observe, you know, here are the experts in the religious law, and how easy for them to sit there and judge something as blasphemy or heresy or to be in error. And they had no clue what they were talking about. <laughs> they, they really had no clue at all. That they would actually sit in judgment of Jesus, the Son of God, and accuse him of blasphemy and heresy shows that the religious system and those, let, let me make it more personal, those who are possessed by a spirit of religion have no spiritual discernment whatsoever. It's very easy to tell those who are possessed by a religious spirit. And one of the predominant characteristics of those possessed with a religious spirit is they find it very easy. Judgment flows like water through them. They find it so easy and so painless to quickly and without very much effort at all judge someone or something as blasphemy, as heresy, as error, as false, and not have a clue what they're talking about. I mean, not the first clue. Now, if if you read my my books and if you read the articles and if you listen to the teachings and you come to the conclusion after all of that, that, you know what? I don't agree with you. I can respect that. What I don't respect is people who who don't read, who don't listen, who don't pray, who don't study, but they hear something. It goes against their tradition. It goes against their uh, their experience of the Lord. And they automatically label that as heresy or false doctrine. And usually they haven't even read uh, what I have had to say or they haven't listened to what I've had to say. And often uh, they don't even bother to try and ask me any questions about what I'm saying. They just automatically judge it as blasphemy or heresy, usually heresy.
So I'm just saying that there's nothing special about that. There's nothing special about the fact that when you speak the truth, that you're going to have people who don't get it and who are going to judge you as false. And I get the fact that if if I publish something and if I put my my teachings out on the Internet, as I have been doing for almost two decades, that I'm going to attract a fair amount of criticism, just as I'm going to attract a fair amount of people who get it and see it. Uh, so I'm not complaining about that, but I'm I'm simply illustrating how easy it is for other people to judge what they don't understand. And I'm saying that to encourage you not to let that deter you from speaking the truth, from pursuing the truth. I don't think that we should be arrogant in proclaiming the truth. We shouldn't proclaim the truth as if we have figured everything out and nobody can tell us anything. Uh, but there's also a right way and a right way to go about something. And I would just observe that the those who are possessed by a religious spirit, uh, they've got a, a big mouth and a small brain. <laughs> Let's just say it that way. Now, we don't want to be that way. We want to be humble. We want to be teachable. And uh, so if if you recognize this coming at you, just understand it for what it is and realize that. They accused Jesus of many things as well. And actually, in the book of Acts, Paul refers to the Christ-centered faith that many were discovering there in the early days of the ecclesia. And they refer to it as the way. And Paul says that he is part of that way which they call heresy. <laughs> so who decides what is heresy? Who decides what is error? Who decides what is false? Who decides what is blasphemy? Well, the very things that we think are heresy can be the actual way and the actual truth and the actual life, but we can't see past our own limited religious, narrow mindset and viewpoint. So be cautious of that. Be aware of that. And don't fall into the trap of loosely accusing someone of blasphemy or heresy or error. Instead, what we should do is make sure that we are following the truth, that we are in the way, meaning in the way of Christ and in the way of truth, not in the way of other people. (laughs) And, you know, if we are off a little bit too far to the left or to the right, God can correct that. If our hearts are open, if if we are open to teaching, open to be corrected, God can correct that. God can fix that. But we don't want to stand in the position of the Sanhedrin with a stacked court with flimsy evidence and false witnesses and be too quick to judge something 
as blasphemy or heresy. I mean, it very well could be Jesus, the Son of God, being manifest through something, and they didn't recognize it because of their own religious blindness. Well, it shouldn't surprise us. We just don't want to go down the same path. Jesus says, you are blind leaders of the blind. And how can you, being evil, know what is good? I mean, he just <laughs> he laid it out for them. Well, that conviction there in the kangaroo court of the Sanhedrin leads us to verse 66 of Mark 14. Now, as Peter was below in the courtyard, remember, he is following Jesus from afar. One of the servant girls of the high priest came, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed, then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Well, you know, it, it's easy for us to look on Peter and sit in judgment of Peter, uh, but I would suggest to you that all of us could, and many of us have, denied the Lord in great things and in small things, just like Peter did. But what I want to focus on is notice the remarkable difference between the disciples, not just Peter, but all the disciples, before the Holy Spirit and after the Holy Spirit. That is such a remarkable difference, especially when you consider that not long after Pentecost, and this would be approximately 50 weeks or 50 days, I should say, 50 days um, from this period of time that Peter and John, the disciples of Jesus, would be standing before the same people who convicted Jesus and turned him over to be crucified. They would be standing before the same Sanhedrin with boldness and authority and power. But here, all had forsook him and fled Peter following at a distance, and then Peter denying the Lord three times. What is the difference between these people now and those people that we read about in the book of Acts? Well, the difference is the Holy Spirit. The difference is following Jesus versus Jesus living in you. Now, I am all about taking up the cross and following Jesus as a disciple, but it is quite different following Jesus as Jesus living on the inside of you, Jesus dwelling in you by his spirit. That is a different kind of, of discipleship than trying to follow Jesus the way these disciples were following him in the flesh. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean it literally. They were following Jesus in the flesh, Jesus in his body, walking around on the dusty trails of Galilee in the countryside 
up and down the stone paths of Jerusalem. The disciples followed Jesus. They were hungry. They were thirsty. They saw the miracles. They saw the the provision. They saw the healings. They saw all of these things, and they sought to follow Jesus. But I'm saying that they were following him in the flesh. And that's why Jesus says, it's better for you if I go away. It's better for you if I go away, because when I go away, the comforter will come, the spirit of truth, and he is with you, but will be in you. Now, I don't want to get into a a big uh, teaching about the Trinity, because I don't think we can figure it out. I don't think we are supposed to figure it out. But I will say that in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, and also the Spirit of Jesus. So without making it too complicated, I think the simplicity of what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to be baptized with the Spirit, or to be Spirit-filled, I think it is simply Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus, coming to dwell within a person just as he promised. And this is what Paul says. It's a mystery hidden from ages and generations, but now is made known to the saints. And that mystery, he says, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul also refers to Christ in you as the Holy Spirit. Know you not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and that God lives in you. So we have God living in me, we have Jesus living in me, Christ in me, and we have the Holy Spirit living in me. Three in one, one in three. You can try to explain that if you want to, but uh, you don't have to understand it to enjoy the revelation of it and to enjoy the, the spiritual blessing. However you you try to relate to that and understand that it's the difference, the difference between following Jesus in the flesh and following Jesus in the spirit, because he is living in me. And the, and the neat thing is not only is he in me, but I am in him. I am in him. And so are you. And this is the, the great, uh, the, the great teaching throughout the New Testament, especially in the letters of Paul, where he tries to explain this mystery, but that some things you just can't explain, you have to experience. And so there's a difference following Jesus versus Jesus living in you. And I would suggest that religion can never get you to that place of Jesus living in you. That requires a relationship. So Peter By denying the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times. Peter is behaving exactly the way a religious person without the Holy Spirit will behave. That is, a religious person will follow Jesus up to a point, but they will deny him when the going gets tough. Because there's not that inner Holy Spirit, that inner Spirit of Jesus, that inner Spirit of God where they have the sense of being in union, one with a person. And when you have the reality of being one with Christ, you're not going to forsake him. 
But religion cannot get you there. Religion can lay it out for you and can spell out the doctrine and the teaching and give you the chapter and verse. But religion cannot bring you the experience of what it means. Paul says that he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Religion cannot take you there. Not only that, I think religion gets in the way of of you getting there because so many people are trying to fill their brain with information. They're trying to fill their mind with doctrine and with teaching, and they want to make sure they've got everything just so, and they want to argue their points and debate their doctrines with one another. And all of these things are a distraction from the simplicity and the love and the joy and the freedom of Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's no hope of glory in religion. The only thing you can expect from the religious system is persecution, damage, disappointment, despair, darkness. That's where the religious system leads. So it's not surprising to me, and it shouldn't be surprising to you, that we find Peter following Jesus at a distance and denying the Lord three times, even though he has been following him for three years. And the difference is he didn't have Jesus living inside of him. He was living with him, but he wasn't living in him in the sense of a spiritual union. And so, as I say, Peter is not unique. This is exactly the way a religious person can be expected to behave. And you remember earlier in Mark 14 and Mark 14, 29, Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be, I will follow you. Even if all the other disciples forsake you, Jesus, I'll never forsake you. I'll never deny you. And those are the words of a religious person who is following Jesus and has more faith in themselves than is warranted. That's what religion does. It makes you feel superior. It makes you feel important. It makes you feel strong. It makes you feel like you're better than the rest of the world and possibly, yea, even better than other disciples of Jesus who are struggling but you're not struggling. You're strong and powerful. You'll never deny the Lord. Even if all are made to stumble, even if everyone else betrays you, I'll never betray you, Lord. But Jesus knew something that Peter didn't know. And in the same way, all of us, one way or another, have denied the Lord by failing to give him preeminence in every area of our life, and in particular, in our spiritual life. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, when we put church in in front of Jesus, we're not giving Jesus the preeminence. When we put our ministry in front of a relationship with the Lord, when we put the work of the Lord in front of the Lord of the work, when God says, come out and we says, I want, we say, I want to stay. When God says, stay and we say, I want to (laughs) go. All of us, one way or another, in in small things and in great things, all of us have denied the Lord, and all of us have the potential to deny the Lord whenever we fail to give him the preeminence 
And I'm saying the only thing that can turn that around is Jesus living in you, following Jesus from a distance, following him even as close as you can in the flesh is not going to prevent you from denying the Lord when push comes to shove. When things get really, really tough, the religious people will fall away. But those who enjoy a Christ-centered relationship, those who are living in him, and he is living in them as the branch lives in the vine, and they are producing fruit, they cannot easily be shaken, and they cannot easily be moved. The spirit of religion is powerful, and it is seductive. It holds many people in its trap. Many people are seduced by its charms. But only the spirit of Jesus can transform us into people willing to sacrifice everything for love. We're not going to sacrifice anything for religion. We'll, we are sacrificing in the name of love, denying ourselves because we love the Lord more than we love ourselves. Living in him and him living in us, that is what it means to have a love relationship with the Lord. And that is manifest by being filled with the Holy Spirit. So the arrest and the sentencing of Jesus to death by the religious leaders ought to teach us something. It is the natural consequence of an antichrist religion created by man and used by Satan to lead people away from the simplicity of Christ. If we follow Jesus long enough and close enough, sooner or later we will have to stand up to that religious spirit. So the question is, will we preserve ourselves and deny the Lord like Peter before Pentecost or like Peter after Pentecost? Will we boldly stand and say, judge for yourselves whether we should obey God or obey man. As for us, we cannot help but speak the things we have seen and heard. If you'd like to get additional teachings, audio recordings, books, and other Christ-centered resources to help you grow spiritually, visit us online at chipbrogdon.com.